Hi, I'm your host, Brittany Spence, and this is In the Face of Illness. We are a podcast committed to cultivating a greater understanding of the many resources available for families facing childhood illness, because we believe this is a vital topic of conversation, not only for families in the throes of the fight, but for everyone. Ultimately, we are here to offer hope in the face of illness. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Cynthia Cross, whose titles include Division Chief of Pediatric Hospital Medicine at Labonner Children's Hospital, Medical Director of Labonner on the Move, and Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center. From a young age, Cynthia knew she wanted to be in the medical field, and she worked as a nurse for several years before she decided to pursue her medical degree. She has a special place in her heart for children and has spent all her life working toward providing accessible and excellent health care for all. Besides being an excellent pediatric doctor, Cynthia has a child of her own with special needs, adding a layer of personal experience that allows her to relate with and care for sick children and their families with even more understanding and care. I have seen Cynthia work hard to serve children and families at Labonner. I'm so excited to talk to her today about her role at Labonner and more specifically about any wisdom she can share on the topic of RSV. We're so glad you're here. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, well, Dr. Cross, why don't we start with um, what your role is at Labonner Children's Hospital? So I have been back at Labonner in the current role since 2008. I'm the division chief for pediatric hospital medicine. So I'm a pediatrician who looks after kiddos who are sick or injured in the hospital. And I absolutely love partnering with the families at Labonner to help with the journey through an illness that landed their kid in the hospital. And so with that, the division chief, um, do you go to every unit, every floor? Do you see all the kids? Do you focus on kind of one area? So we look after kids anywhere other than in the intensive care unit. So if they're in the pediatric intensive care unit or cardiovascular ICU or neuro ICU, we don't see them. But any kid from the 7th through the 12th floor um, could possibly be admitted to our service, the hospitalist service. And we have two hospitalist services at Labonner. We have one, which is the one I um, am with, which is an all attending service. And then we have our more traditional teaching service, sort of like what you might see on Gray's Anatomy, where you have multiple learners and then um, a more experienced doctor who is the overseer for the team. Okay. And then do y'all just rotate days, nights? Are y'all always covering the hospital? So our docs cover uh, a week at a time, and usually we're there from about 6 in the morning until six or seven at night. We also have an evening doctor who stays until 11 or 11.30. And then the residents cover our team for about seven to eight hours at night when we're not there. But we have a doctor on call during that time just in case there are problems. Got it. Um, And so when a patient is in the hospital, you would oversee their care? Yes, 
Yeah, so we do everything. We would do their physical exam. We would get a history from the family. We would order lab work. We visit with them at least a couple times a day to see how the child is doing, provide updates for the families, a little hand holding, a little back rubbing before COVID, lots of hugs, (laughs) uh, just to help them through it. Because having a child in the hospital is a very trying experience. When my daughter was admitted, I literally could not taste my food and I couldn't see colors. Mm -hmm. It was just an out-of-body experience because your world stops when it's your baby. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, For sure. Um, And prior to 2008, um, or maybe it's even been past that, at one time, the pediatricians that are in the community used to come in and actually kind of oversee their patients. Yes. That seems to have gone away, is that correct? Yeah, that model, is the traditional model and was that way until we started the hospitalist program. And many pediatricians are managing a very busy office practice with very complex patients. And then they were also trying to take care of kids in the hospital. And the hospital environment, I mean, you know, you're married to a physician and you've been in the hospital um, for years yourself. It's a very complex and ever-changing environment and very difficult to navigate if you're not there um, from day to day because things change. Mm-hmm. And so it was very difficult for for these docs to feel that they were really meeting the needs of their patients. And so many of the providers in the community reached out to us about signing their kids up with the hospitalist service. And those doctors are still very involved with the care of their patients. They know that they're at the hospital. They get telephone calls when it's time for them to go home and they get daily updates that are provided through our electronic health record. If there are questions or issues that come up along the way, we also reach out to their providers. And so our intent is to keep the provider very well involved in what's going on with their patient, but also be able to manage things in a real-time basis. And then when the patient is discharged from the hospital, they Mm -hmm. go back into the care of their community pediatrician. Yes. Yeah. We get a a nice summary of what happened in the hospital. We also um, make phone calls to the offices at least 75% of the time. Sometimes we just don't connect, but the discharge summary is done within 24 hours. And usually we make a call to the provider to discuss the hospital, hospital stay. It also gives them a chance to ask questions. So you have definitely talked about your role and all the different ways um, that you help at Labonner. And um, how do you feel like you can best support families dealing with the illness of a child? I think that's a great question. And for me, it means making a connection with the family, understanding what this illness has done to them and making sure they understand the care that's being provided, the rationale behind that care, and also letting them know that I see them as a family unit and also as um, people, not a disorder or a disease, but as people who have a child that is sick with X disorder and that my role is to support them and help them through it. I look at it as very much uh, a team effort and I am on their team, uh, not the other way around. And I like to uh, make it as clear and simple as possible. Um, but in, not in a condescending way. 
Um, when my daughter was in, I realized that I had a bit of brain dysfunction. Like I didn't hear things quite the way they were spoken maybe. And so what I try to do is to also use our whiteboards and put a treatment summary on the board and then ask the families to jot their questions or concerns on the board so that we can talk about them and so that they don't forget when I come by because they're sleep deprived. Mm -hmm. I do other things like making sure they're getting enough rest, um, making sure they have food because the food is expensive and not all of our families can afford to eat in the cafeteria. So just looking at things like that, who's looking after the other kids, uh, letting them know that we understand that this is difficult. Um, I think those are the ways I, I support the, the families on a, I guess, on a larger scale. I try to stay involved with things globally in the hospital, so committee work and overseeing our processes and making sure that we are a safe environment for families. Mm-hmm, for sure. And you have an incredible reputation, too, at Le Bonner and oh, always thank have. You. and. Um, just things that I have heard through the years and how supportive and loving you are. So I know that you are more than just a pediatrician down there, that you really are amazing and making such a difference. So thank you from me and also from the families that you interact with. Um, What would be something that you would really want a caregiver to know? Um, If, you know, we I said briefly to you that my youngest had, um, we have our story of Forrest who spent two months in the pediatric ICU. And then we also, um, our second son spent a week in the NICU when he was born at one of the um, hospitals in the community. And then our youngest, our fourth, um, got RSV and spent um, a week in the hospital and then a month later spent another week in the hospital. And so um, I think so many of the things you said of you feel like you're in brain fog, you can't understand honestly what's going on. I would often tell people that I felt like they were speaking a foreign language, Mm -hmm. that the words that were coming out of the physician, attendings, residents, mouths, um, I often felt like it it was like it was a foreign language. I couldn't understand. Um, And I had a very quick in those two months um, lesson because I knew I had to learn all this in order to best understand. But for these caregivers that are being thrust into this, their Mm -hmm. child has a trauma that they immediately have to go to the hospital. Their child has a sickness. They immediately go to the hospital. Um, What are things that you would like for caregivers to know? How can caregivers be the best advocate for their child? How can they support their child while also supporting those that are taking care of their child? Mm -hmm. Um, How can they be the best caregiver that they can be while in the hospital? Because we know it looks very different than being the caregiver at home. Um, So what would you like for them to know? So I think there are some universal feelings that people experience when they come to the hospital. There is this sense of an out-of-body experience. There is a sense of a loss of control. Mm -hmm. And there is sometimes concern that they have lost ownership of their child because we come in and we make decisions. I would like for families to know that 
they are the experts when it comes to their particular child, not me and not our subspecialists. They are the expert on that child. They know what comforts him. They know how he is on a good day. They know what his triggers are, and they know how to navigate some of his anxieties. They know what look he gets when he's frightened. And to speak up, because they are the experts on that kid. Mm -hmm. And we really want to partner with the families. I think it's always sad when there is a breakdown in the relationship between the family and the care team. Because I think when it's at its best, it works so well. You have families and providers working together for the good of that kid. Taking a step back and allowing the family to voice their concerns is so important. And if there is room for negotiation, then we need to negotiate. Mm -hmm. There are very few black and whites in medicine. There's a lot of gray and families have a right to speak up. We had one long-term patient whose mom told me, you know, we'd be better if we just didn't have that four o'clock vital sign check and we didn't realize that was even happening. We just assumed they were just recording things from the monitor, but we hadn't removed the blood pressures. And the blood pressure would wake the kid up and she didn't need her blood pressure checked at 4 a.m. anymore. And that was an easy negotiation. Say, oh, well, we can just remove that 4 a.m. blood pressure, no trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, things like that. Mm -hmm. Or saying, you know, my child is an early riser and it's okay if you come in early. Mm -hmm. Other times their kid's not an early riser and maybe I can see someone else and come back at 8 a.m. when they're awake already. Uh, just things like that. Or a family saying, I know my child is only six, but they swallow pills. They don't chew tablets. And if you give them liquid, they're just going to spit it out. That is unusual, but it certainly happens. Things like that families should be empowered to speak up. Mm -hmm. If you don't think things are going the way they should, speak up. Talk to your bedside nurse, talk to the charge nurse, talk to the doctor. Everybody has a boss. The doctor even has a boss. If it's me, then you call our chief medical officer, Dr. Gilmore, or you call our chair of pediatrics, Dr. McCullers. If things are not going the way you want, it is not mean for you to speak up about your child. I would encourage you to do it respectfully because you want don't want people to turn down the volume and not listen to you because of how you talk to them. But I say with respect, speak to the care team and say, hey, I would like this or I would like that or hey, we tried this before and it didn't work. Um, can we try this? Or some people say, hey, I heard about this. Does it work? Those questions are great. I encourage folks to write their questions down, jot them on the board, plug them in your phone. The nice thing about putting them on the whiteboard is they're visible to the care team. So I can look at the board and see that you had a question, even if you forgot that you wrote it there. Um, I'll still see it when I come in. And if you're gone, I'll scribble you a message um, answering your question. You might not be able to read it, but I'll, <laughs> I'll leave you one. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so the term family-centered care is yes. really, truly... It's a way. It's yes. not just a, a word that's thrown around, um, at least at Lebonner Children's Hospital. It's that's right. a way. It is the foundation of how we operate. That is how we roll. Mm -hmm. Patient and family center care. Patient and family at the center of the care team. Everybody else is the supporting staff, okay? But 
the kids and their families should be at the center. That is why we're there. Yeah. Um, I encourage families, too, when I am able to mentor non-COVID time, I always encourage them to write down their questions, to keep a journal, to write them down, um, because I do feel like when the care team comes in and speaking, you know, from the hospitals that the Forest Spence Fund works most closely with, Lavonner Children's Hospital, Monroe Carroll Junior Children's Hospital, and Children's Hospital at Erlinger, they're all teaching hospitals. Mm-hmm. And so um, that used to be very overwhelming to me of how many walked into the room right. to how many wanted to listen to your child breathe or how many wanted to do a checkup on them. Um, but coming from a wife of, of a husband who went through that process and knows how unbelievably important it is for a teaching hospital to let the med students and the first years and the residents and the fellows have that experience because one day they are the attendings. I understand that now, but when when you are holding your tiny infant and it took you forever to get them to go to sleep and they're finally asleep and then 10 people from a care team walk in and disrupt that, it is very nerve wracking, I know. And so I always tell parents to write their questions down because mm-hmm. when that large care team comes in, you often forget what you had on your mind. And so if you have it written down, that's very helpful. And then I always say to trust your mother's, father's, grandmother's, grandfather's intuition. As you said, we know our children the best. And so, um, but we also have to trust that our care team is so much more knowledgeable than we are. You've gone to school for a really long time. You've seen so many cases. And so we also have to trust that your knowledge um, is is what we really need to listen to and trust, um, but to never not trust your own mother's intuition, um, whether that's the child needs to sleep longer or the child that that child doesn't enjoy what's happening there or um, they're, you s- seem to think they're getting a little bit sicker or things aren't looking quite like they thought um, because you're with them all, almost all, all the, time. the time. Yeah, that's right. Where yeah. the care team, you know, often can uh, come in and they see things maybe that you don't. But, um, well, I'm going to pivot just a little bit because one of the things that we want to talk about with you um, is RSB. And um, we would love for you to explain a little bit more. What does RSV stand for? Um, And then we're going to talk a little bit about the preventive measures that families can take as well. So what does RSV stand for? RSV stands for respiratory syncytial virus. It's a viral infection that's usually limited to winter and early spring. Sometimes late fall, it'll start. Unfortunately, RSV uh, came with a vengeance this summer. It is probably the most common reason for kids under two years of age to get admitted to a hospital. Starts out looking like a cold virus, no big deal, little runny nose, Um, and then three to five days into it, kids lose their appetite, it moves into their chest, they're coughing and wheezing and having trouble breathing. For the little babies, once their nose is stuffy, things are really tough because they're not yet adept at opening their mouths to breathe. So they're trying to breathe against that stuffy nose, they lose their appetite, they get dehydrated, and unfortunately some of those babies get to the point where they just tire out and quit breathing. Those babies end up on ventilators in the intensive care unit, and they get pretty sick. They stay there for weeks. Most of them don't die, but they are sick for a long time. 
and unfortunately even though RSV makes them pretty sick you can get it more than once so it's really possible to get it early in the season and then get it later in the season we are all wondering what RSV season is going to look like this year um, with COVID being around as well because a few weeks ago we were just inundated with lots of cases of RSV and we were all asking ourselves why is it here now you know, we didn't invite RSV to come and be a summer bug, but it was. And theory, one theory is since kids were masked and home last year, some kids who would have already been immune didn't get it. So it just created an increase in the number of susceptible individuals in the community. Um, things that parents can do to protect their kids if you can keep them home during the winter months, that's great, but there are many of us mommies who have to work and our kids have to go to daycare. If your kid is sick with fever and runny nose, be kind to your fellow mommies and dads who are dropping their kids off at daycare and try to keep them home. Or don't go to Mother's Day out that week if your kid is sick. RSV is very contagious and adults get it too and can spread it. Kids spread it from one to another. Staying healthy in the winter, has been a, a challenge because it's when we're all inside so we're in close quarters we pass bacteria and viruses back and forth amongst each other COVID taught us though that if you put a mask on you can even decrease the incidence of rsv and flu we had very little of either last winter because everybody was really following the masking guidelines now i'm not saying we have to live in masks every winter but it is food for thought, right? Mm -hmm. For yeah. sure, for sure. Yeah, hand washing also works. Hand hygiene, you know, soap and water or hand sanitizer, just pretty much all the time. Um, that helps as well. So often for children over two or adults, it often looks like the common cold, correct? Yes, exactly. Unless you have underlying asthma or cardiac condition, or maybe your immune system isn't up to par, then it may get more severe. We have seen some older kids with RSV sicker this year than in typical years, which leads us to wonder if there's something different about the strain that was circulating in the community, but we have no proof of that. But for the most part, it's the younger babies that have the toughest time with RSV. In, in your recommendation, um, from our experience, I think I mentioned that our youngest had had it, and we had a two and four year old at home. And mm -hmm. so, even though she wasn't at that time in daycare, school, and really we weren't taking her out, she was mm -hmm. a Christmas baby born at Christmas, and so we really weren't taking her out. But our our boys right. brought it home, um, and very vividly I remember uh, my middle, who is two and a half at the time, she was in a little bouncy seat and. You know, we were still trying to uh, bond them. Mm -hmm. And so we were so excited that he was wanting to pay attention to her. And then all of a sudden we noticed that he sneezed in her face. And um, right then we thought, man, that probably isn't good. <laughs> and very quickly, a couple of days later, she became very sick. And so I know there's, you can do so much to protect your children, but mm -hmm. then, you know, even in your own home. Um, but do you recommend certain ages not taking them out as much trying to protect them or even putting a cover over the car seat or encouraging um, you know them not to go around a lot of, of different people when they're so young is there absolutely okay yeah all those things Brittany you you hit it on the head keep them home mm -hmm. at least 
through the first two months of life because if those babies get fever, um, they may end up needing the complete evaluation for bacterial sepsis, which is an overwhelming infection, and they end up getting the needle in their back, and no mommy wants to see that. So I say keep them home as much as you can. Um, Teach your older kids to use hand sanitizer, to wash, to cough into their sleeve. Mm -hmm. The healthiest baby in the family is usually the first one because they don't have siblings to bring them home. Mm -hmm. Um, True story, my sister gave me RSV. I'm pretty sure that's what it was because I was born in April, and uh, my mom insists that I started wheezing like in the first month of life and I'm like yeah I probably had RSV yeah mm-hmm. so um, you want your siblings to love you and to share things with you but probably not RSV but there's not a whole lot you can do when they're in the same household mm-hmm. the other trick is that many times the kids are already contagious before they ever get fever they're already shedding the virus and some don't get fever and so it's already there and they've already exposed everyone in, in the house. I don't know that there's a whole lot you can do about that because you don't want that older child to be alienated from the new baby. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, like you said, if, if COVID, you know, COVID has taught us a lot. But one thing for sure is just how much washing hands, wearing masks, covering coughs and sneezes mm-hmm. um, can really help. And so... I think about that just now that we have experienced a child who had RSV and had to be hospitalized for it, you know, I had a new found, um, that was our last, and so we didn't have another child, but just thinking about the ways that you can protect them, not, you know, maybe taking turns, you know, when the uh, someone else can come over so you can go to the grocery store alone so you mm-hmm. don't have to take the child with right. you, or, um, you know, doing drive-throughs, or getting your groceries dropped to you or not taking the baby into the daycare when you pick up the older children, you know, thinking of ways, especially in those first few months. Oh, yeah. Hand Um, sanitizer before the little one at daycare gets into the car or having some hand sanitizer in the car. Right. Or wipes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Cleaning them Mm -hmm. off. Yep. Why is RSV something families should take seriously? It can be life-threatening, even if your baby doesn't die to as a parent watch a kid struggle to breathe it's probably one of the most heartbreaking things you're ever going to experience your baby won't remember it but you'll never forget it and it's just a a a mean bully of a virus okay it picks on the youngest and the the weakest makes them super sick Um, and I don't think anybody out there wants their baby to be admitted to the hospital. The hospital is nice to visit if you want to walk through and see our artwork, but most folks aren't lining up to come and be a patient at Lamonter. And if a child does contract RSV, what are the steps you think that they should take? So I would definitely keep an eye on their breathing. Um, Try to keep the nose suction, particularly for the smaller babies. You can do that with a bulb and some saline, or you can buy one of the nose Fritas. And one of the parents even told me there's a a fancy electric one that she ordered from Amazon. The babies will probably not want to drink as much as typical, and that's okay. Give them smaller amounts more frequently, and keep an eye on the wet diapers. If the wet diapers are becoming less frequent than every eight hours, or you think they're getting dehydrated because of other means, or they're just sleeping, 
or they're really struggling to breathe, those BBs need to be seen. And if you're more than a 10 or 15 minute drive from the hospital and that baby's struggling, don't hesitate to call a paramedic because it's more than a ride to the hospital. There's rescue treatment on that bus and um, get your baby seen and taken care of. Most kids with RSV are gonna do fine. If you're worried, but you don't think it's to the point that they need to see um, someone in the emergency department or urgent care, then call your doctor. Um, COVID has also made us more adept at telehealth. So you may call your doctor and get them on a video call and they can watch your baby breathe and tell you whether or not they're worried. Uh, you can also try, I think there are videos on Google that show you what really bad breathing looks like. And so you can familiarize yourself that way um, with things to look for. And I'll say from our experience, um, retracting is mm-hmm. a word you know that they say is your baby retracting and for someone who's not in the medical world you know didn't really understand what that was but then when you actually unzip the pjs and you lift up the shirt and you look at the tummy you'll never not know what that is right. because you really see the belly going in yes. because they're they're working so hard to breathe yes that you can tell that it's not normal. And, um, you know, in our situation, we had had, you know, kind of watched our daughter get worse and worse and um, got to where she was sleeping. We put her in a little bassinet right next to the bed and got up with her around four in the morning and saw the retracting and knew this is really, this is too much. And so went in and and was admitted um, and really, she just needed support, uh, breathing support, so she could kind of fight it herself. She mm-hmm. didn't get so bad that she had to be intubated in the ICUs, but she did need oxygen. She needed more of the nasal cleaning out than yeah. we could provide. Um, we had done the bulb. We had done the nose Frida. We had done all those things, but the hospital has definitely the best. Yes. Um, but it is so hard to watch. And I feel like ever since that, for us, it was eight and a half years ago. I've always wanted to be able to make sure that families are aware. Don't live in fear, but also be aware and conscientious of um, that it's not a great thing at all. And that no. you want to protect and take care and do what you can to prevent it. And then obviously there's instances where you just can't. We know that there are a lot of single moms and single dads who are doing the best they can. And so that baby needs to go with them wherever they go. And so um, we just encourage you maybe get a, a blanket to go over the car seat to protect, maybe have a little sign that says, don't touch new baby. Um, you know, encourage anyone that does come, keep hand sanitizer on you, always washing hands. Um, and, you know, the beautiful thing about today's day is that we have these phones that have videos. And yes. so you can video call with people and FaceTime and let mm-hmm. them see that new baby until your baby gets old enough that you feel like they're strong. And through this, for the most part, like you said, it, it was the winter right. that we were the most co- concerned about. Um, COVID has kind of caused some new things. But just those early ages, I think, are the most Absolutely. concerning. Yeah, um, I know your husband, David, is an orthopedic surgeon, and one of his uh, colleagues approached me one morning many years ago, and I knew his wife was pregnant, and I said, hey, you guys had the new baby? He goes, oh, yeah, you want to see a picture? And I said, oh, he's so cute. And he looked at me very honestly and said, 
when can we take him to church? And this was like December. And I said, maybe March. Mm -hmm. And he started laughing because he thought I was joking. And he goes, oh, you're serious, aren't you? And I said, yeah, because if that baby gets sick or with a fever, then you're going to have to come see me. And I'm going to have to put a needle in his back. And then you're going to hate me. And he goes, Ooh. <laughs> yeah, you do not want that. You do not. We unfortunately had to do that, and it was... It's not fun. It is. That, that yeah. scream from that baby is something I will never forget. Oh, I know. Um, I know. And sometimes it just has to happen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and sometimes it's 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 no fault of the parents. It's, as you said, sometimes you don't know or you're doing the best you can and yeah. unfortunately a baby got sick mm-hmm. there aren't many folks out there who intentionally make their kids sick right. and i always try to remind moms and dads and other caregivers that we know you didn't do this on purpose and sometimes it's just that you didn't know that was something harmful for your kids mm-hmm. and we're there to educate and to help guide people along to maybe a better path so, as you said, make some modifications. Um, so, have a drive, drive-by drive mm-hmm. um, if people want to visit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they can come past your window, and you can hold that sweet little thing up, and they can see them through the window. That's right. That's yeah. right. <laughs> well, is there anything else that you feel like our listeners should know in regards to um, life in the hospital, hospitalist? RSB, we kind of covered a lot of things. Um, Is there anything else that you would like for us to make sure we hit on? I think as a hospitalist, I feel privileged um, and also a little bit challenged at the same time. I feel privileged that families allow me to partner with them and during a very difficult time. I feel challenged because they're meeting me on the worst day of their lives and they don't know me from, as my grandma would say, Eve. Uh, and and that part is is tough. I want them to know that we're there for them and um, to always feel free to speak up, to reach out, to ask questions. That's what we're there for. We're there for them, not the other way around. And I feel like one of the other things that COVID um, really affected as well is families, I don't think are going into the hospital as quickly as they might have because they're fearful. Yes. But if your child is sick, you need to go. Absolutely. And the hospital is doing everything they can to make sure that your child is safe and healthy. And so um, we just want to encourage you, don't be fearful to go for fear of COVID because we want to make sure that your child is getting the best care possible. And that is making sure that they're getting the support, uh, the medicine, the treatment that they need. Um, even though we all have fear of, of the what ifs, but we want to make sure that they're getting the best care possible. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so well much for spending time with us today. Thank you for what you do um, for the Mid-South community. We're so lucky to have you at La and in the corner of all these families fighting for them and their children. And um, thank you for making a difference. We really appreciate it. Thank you. You're quite welcome. And thank you for all the work you do with the Forest Spence Fund and all the stuff you do for our kids at La Bonner and the kids in this community. You guys are amazing. You're rock stars. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to our latest episode. We hope that this podcast is a resource for you and a source of support. Whether you are facing illness in your own family or want to walk beside other families dealing with childhood illness, we want the stories, wisdom, and knowledge shared to give you hope. Episodes will be released bi-weekly, so be sure to subscribe today.